So over the last couple of months, we've had a number of uh, little ones join the church and we've been celebrating these births as uh, moms have uh, been bringing little ones into the world and it's been so exciting. We've uh, had a number of baptisms and a couple of weeks ago, I was heading out to the McHugh's to baptize uh, little baby Emma. And um, as I was heading out there, uh, we, we, we got, you know, kind of halfway to their house and... Um, we looked down at the gas gauge and our, our vehicle is a little bit older. The gas gauge doesn't work great. The light comes on way too late. We looked down and realized, oh my goodness, we are probably not going to have enough gas to get back home. So we, we get to the McHugh's and uh, I said to Matt, I said, yeah, I said, Matt, you wouldn't happen to have a jerry can with some, with some gas, would you? And thankfully he did. So he goes out, gets the can, puts a little bit of gas in the car, just enough to get me to the gas station where I'm able to get back home. And uh, that picture of getting just, just a little bit to get you started, just enough gas to get you going, that was really my understanding of my Christian faith for most of my life. My understanding of Christian faith for most of my life was what Jesus did at the cross got me started. You know, he, at the cross, his grace got me moving and his love and his works and Christ's obedience got everything moving. But then my continued obedience, my continued good works, my continued love for neighbor, that was what was going to make my salvation actual. Jesus made it possible, but my life of continued obedience made it actual. That was really my understanding. And in about 2010, my world got rocked as a handful of various preachers were graciously brought into my life who started uh, teaching me uh, uh, the actual gospel, which is no, Jesus did not make salvation possible, but actual. He didn't just get us started. Uh, he doesn't just get us into God's good graces, and then through our obedience, we remain in God's good graces. And as I began to have my heart and my mind blown by the goodness of God's grace, by the sufficiency of Christ, um, I started talking about that pretty boldly, pretty broadly. And when I did talk about uh, grace in those kind of terms uh, about Jesus being enough and everything that he did being sufficient. A lot of people would say to me, well, a lot of people would say, glad you caught up. Uh, welcome to uh, the family of God. But then there were some others who would say, what about James? Be and the reason they would say, what about James is because um, in the book of Romans chapter two and Galatians chapter three and Ephesians chapter two, over and over and over, the Apostle Paul explicitly says, we are saved by faith apart from our works. Then you get to the book of James, and James explicitly says, you are not saved with faith that has no works. So what's going on? Are these guys confused? Is there a problem here? What is up with James? Let's take a look. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing to help their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. 
You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and, and, and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is God's word. So as I said before, Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and numerous, numerous places throughout the New Testament are repeatedly and explicitly saying um, that we are justified apart from our works. And then we just read here that James is very clear. He says we can't be justified without works. So now what do we do? Do we close the church? Do we shut it down? There's a great discrepancy in the Bible. We have to just treat it like every other body of ancient teaching where we say, well, it can't be definitive in our life. It can't be authoritative in our life. It's really confusing. And it's not a divine guide from God. It's sort of just like general guidelines to you know guide your morality, but you can't take the Bible too seriously. Should this be the way that we relate to all of this? Um, yeah, absolutely not. The scriptures are an infallible guide and there is no contradiction here. And we want to understand what it is that James is saying and what he's, what he's getting after. Both Paul and James are experts in the law. So first of all, we don't want to insult their intelligence. Not only are they experts in the law, but history teaches us in Acts chapter 15 that they were together when they decided uh, as a, a council um, that the gospel was that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. So they're both on the same page. Paul and James are on the same page. James knows that Paul is going around to Galatia and Ephesus and, and uh, writes the letter. James, James knows that Paul is preaching that we are justified by faith alone. So what in the world is going on here? Well, what we don't want to do is put them in a ring, make them fight each other, confuse our, our understanding of Christian faith and kind of end up in this place where, where it's like, you know, here's where we go uh, for our theology to die um, and for the gospel to be lost. And what we don't want to do, which would be very tempting, is to say, well, hey, maybe it's both and. Can't it be both and? Can't it be Jesus plus Jesus works plus my works? Can't it be both and? No, it can't be both and. We want to understand very clearly what is going on here. They're not confused. We don't want to insult their intelligence. What James has been doing from the beginning of this book, if you've been tracking with this series, is he is speaking very provocatively. He is using incredibly strong language with his church to get the attention of his church, which by extension should get the attention of our church. And what is his intention in being so provocative? He's, he's doing it with wordplay. I'll, 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 I'll explain it this way. In the same way that Paul and James do not have a disagreement about the word justified. Um, in, the, in our English language, we have the word awful. We use it all the time. And if you use the word awful in the last week or month or year, you probably used it uh, according to one of its definitions. One of its definitions is you're describing something unpleasant. You're describing something terrible. You say, oh, this tea is awful. This tea tastes like 
a boiled sock, you know. Oh, all tea is awful, said the coffee drinker, creating dissension in his church unwisely. Um, you know, oh, it's awful. That's how we use <laughs> the word. Um, but it also has another meaning. And we just don't really use it this way, but you could. It means to be full of wonder, full of awe, awful. But you don't use it that way. Right? And, and if you did use it that way, it would be pretty pr- provocative. None of you are at the cottage and you go out on the deck and you sip your tea, you know, and um, you look out on the lake and the sun is setting. And none of you go, wow, that sunset is awful. <laughs> We've got all these beautiful babies in the church. None of you have looked at your newborn baby as the baby comes out and said, oh my goodness, the little hands are so precious. The little feet are so precious. Look at the little nose. I just look at this baby and it, I feel awful. That's the correct use of the word. You just, that's not what you mean. That's not how you use it. It's wordplay. You've, you know, you, we just talked about upcoming wedding with uh, Benji and Vanessa. You know, I looked at their engagement photos and, you know, Benji did not play that beautiful song for his love and then look up at Vanessa and say, Vanessa, as we just sit here, I just can't help but say, you look awful. In the same way that uh, if you heard somebody say that in public, if you were at a restaurant and you heard, you heard the table next to you, you heard somebody say, I just got to let you know, you make me feel awful. You would lean in. You would be like, oh, what's going to be said next? And that is what James is doing here. Because the word justified can be used two ways. The way Paul is using it. The way Paul is using it is he's talking about justified being a state of being. I am justified. Paul is asking the question, what what makes us justified? And the answer is Christ alone. That's how Paul is using it. But justified can also be used not as a state of being, I am justified, but you can be asked to justify something, to prove it. So it's not a state of being, but, a, but the act of proving. So in all of Paul's letters, he's dealing with the state of being justified. James here gets the whole church to lean in and go, what is this guy saying? And James is saying, prove to me You're justified. On what basis? Where's the evidence that would convict you of this scandalous grace that you claim? And so we want to understand the the tone of the text in this way. And so over and over, Paul's letters are asking, what makes you right? And the answer is the grace of Jesus, faith in Jesus, being united to Jesus. And so James goes, point to the evidence you've received that grace. Point to the evidence you have that faith. Point to the evidence that that union actually exists. And by By proving you are not making yourself righteous, you are in the act of pointing to the reason you are saying you are declared righteous. And so the reason why James provokes Christians to take a good hard look at what we do is not because we're saved by what we do, but because the evidence that we are heirs of the love and the grace of Christ should be evidenced in the gradual but inevitable, unmistakable imitation of Christ, which is why during the time of the Reformation, Melanchthon summarized this teaching, Luther's buddy, summarized this teaching by saying, we are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that remains alone. 
So for the remainder of this teaching this morning, we're going to break this text out and we're going to ask three questions. The first question is, what does it look like when faith is useless and dead? The second question is, what does it look like when faith is true and alive? And lastly, is it possible for dead faith to come alive? So first, what does it look like when the faith is useless and dead? Well, James goes right back to the provocative uh, topic of the poor. And he says, if you are unfazed or callous or judgmental or indifferent to the poor, then your faith is dead. Jesus came as one who was poor. Jesus came and was born in a saliva-drenched feeding trough who left his riches to become poor to show us that the state of humanity was that we are all spiritually poor. And therefore, if you are totally unmoved by the poor, then you do not understand the gospel yet. Grace has not yet gripped your heart. James is very provocative with this. He's like, those who see themselves as the spiritually poor will be moved with compassion when they see the poor. And so the significance of this, of course, is because the cross of Jesus Christ shows us that the state of humanity was so poor, God Almighty had to come and die for us. And yet we're so loved that he wanted to. The cross means there's no upper class in spirit. You're not like, I'm good, I don't need Jesus. There's no middle class in spirit. You know, hey, I'm a pretty good person. I just need Jesus to kind of top me up <laughs> with add his works to my works. There's no middle class in spirit. There's no upper class in spirit. There's no team, you and me, Jesus. There's no going to be no high fives in heaven, <laughs> you know, in the restoration of all things when Christ returns. None of us are going to high five Jesus and go, we make a great team, don't we? You did your thing at the cross. I did my thing for the rest of my life. And together we accomplish salvation. That is not going to happen. There's no middle class or upper class in spirit. There's only poor in spirit. We're only saved by grace alone. And when the scandal of that grace truly grips your heart, it will transform the way that you relate to the poor because you will see them as a mirror unto yourself that you are spiritually poor. So that's the first thing. That's why verse 15 says, suppose somebody in the church comes to you and they're in need and your response is to say, oh, I hope you do well, praying for you, per hands emoji, per hands emoji, per hands emoji, and that's all that ever happens? James goes, oh my goodness, that faith is useless and dead. There's no way this scandal of grace that you boast that you're so excited about, there's no way you're excited about it because you would resemble in some way, a flawed way, an imperfect way, but in some way, the Jesus who you claim is so beautiful to you, who's so amazing to you. So James is really unapologetic about this, saying the one way you know that you're, that the faith is useless and dead is it's all talk and no action. You're talking about your books, you're writing your blogs, you're giving your thoughts, you're giving your theories, you're doing your podcast, you're doing your preaching, you're doing your pontificating, but at the end of the day, Jesus is not beautiful to you. So he is really strong on this. And so the second way that we know that faith is useless and dead, James gives us, as you look at it, is we kind of relate to God like a demon, which is really weird, but that's just what he does. He... He uses tremendous sarcasm. Oh, you believe there's a God? Well, good for you. <laughs> the demons believe that too. And they shudder. So what is he getting at here? All of, your, all of your moral behavior, all of your religious activity. Oh, I haven't been to church in a while. I'm going to tune in today. So everybody just stays off my back. It's all just m religious motions. 
He says that you're doing it all based on fear. Look at, look at the text. Look at what the text says. The demons believe and they shudder. That's fear. The demons are going around doing their thing. They have uh, this sort of this existential sort of awareness that at one day judgment day is coming. That's why when they talk to Jesus in the New Testament, they're like, hey, uh, you know, Jesus shows up. And they're like, uh, we didn't think it was our time yet. You can read that in the Gospels. They have this. It's a phobic fear. They're like the end is coming. And so religious people who have this dead religion this kind of they're going through the externals of morality um, but it's motivated like it, like the demons are motivated. It's like, oh, I know God exists in some sort of abstract way. It's a sort of fire insurance. I'm hedging against my bets. You know, I'll be active enough in the church that everybody just kind of leaves me alone. But ultimately, none of this is really, really moves me. James goes, that faith is absolutely dead. You can say grace, grace, grace all you want with your mouth, but you're just not excited about this Lord that you claim uh, that you're excited about. So this is tremendously provocative language that James uses. He goes, that faith is useless and dead. So let's move to the next question. What does it look like then when faith is true and alive, right? It looks like being moved with compassion because we are united to Jesus Christ who was moved with compassion, right? James is saying, your life of love and compassion does not save you, but it sure is the evidence that you're united to the one who has saved you. And so you want to remember also that James is Jesus' little brother. And, and uh, as Jesus' little brother, who didn't always believe that Jesus was the Lord until he saw the resurrected Christ, James is saying, now, if we believe in this Jesus, there's got to be some evidence that we desire to resemble him, that we would love him, that we would love one another as he did. Of course, we're going to do that uh, imperfectly, but it should be inevitably because that union is real, because the grace of Christ is real, because the indwelling power of his spirit is real. And notice the context of the needy. You'll find it in verse 15. It's not uh, the greater community. It's actually the church community. That's where it begins, right? Um, He says, if somebody, if one of your brothers or sisters comes to you and says, hey, see, that's family language. This isn't caring for a homeless person in the city, though we should be doing that. He's saying, in the community, it's like there's this indifference. What is this? What so? What does it look like if um, it's true and alive? Well, it's arguably harder, isn't it, to care and love for the other people who are on this call this morning? It's difficult, isn't it? It's easy at the grocery store to say, "Yeah, I'm going to give two dollars to the food bank," and of course, we can all do that. And that's a beautiful thing to do that. But that's that's pretty easy to send. Some, just be like, "I I am not really connected to you, but I'm going to send some money your way." That's easier than time and energy and effort and making a meal and driving over and sitting for coffee and letting people, you know, talk about their problems and praying and caring. That's, that's difficult. That's going to require some death to self, death to schedule. It's going to require some, that's going to require some, that's going to require the indwelling power of Jesus for us to get outside of ourselves. So James goes right after this. Now I know the immediate context is, is financial poverty, the poor. So I don't want to, I'm not trying to uh, bypass the immediate context, but as modern North American Christians in a social structure where there are systems in place by the government to care for one of us if we fall on hard times, it's very easy for us to read this text and go, oh, you know what, this doesn't apply to me uh, because there's nobody, uh, you know, there's nobody at Redeemer who's so poor that, so I can just bypass this text because the poor in spirit among us, all of us have moments where we have tremendous need. 
And the question is, is there compassion in hearts? So faith that is true and alive is going to look like that compassion. And uh, notice the examples that James gives to describe this faith that is alive. He uses Abraham and Rahab. Now, guys, for those of you who are new to the Bible, let me tell you, this is quite a pull, putting these two, putting these two together. I told you earlier that James was being provocative. You got to understand, the audience he's writing to are Jewish Christians. They're Messianic Jews. That means they believe that Christ was the Messiah, is the Messiah. So he's being provocative. He's like, hey, we're going to go with Abraham and Rahab, okay, guys? Abraham is your hero, the father of faith. You got posters of him in your room. Rahab was a prostitute, not a hero. Should probably not have posters of her in your room. If, 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 Little boys had posters of Abraham. That was cool. If they had posters of Rahab, mama was coming in and pulling those posters down. Okay? But James, James puts them right together unapologetically. He's like, let's look at what true faith looks like, shall we? The faith of your hero and the faith of a prostitute. Both are saved by believing in God and their belief, their faith in the trusting God, this gift of his saving grace is evidenced then The evidence that would convict them that they truly believe is in their work. With Abraham, of course, it was the offering of Isaac, which I'll get to in a minute. And with Rahab, it was hiding God's people. And this woman was so brave, so courageous, she risks her life. That was the evidence of of her faith in God was so real. She puts herself in mortal danger. And Rahab the prostitute is in the lineage of Jesus. God is so committed to salvation by faith and grace alone. Read the introduction to Matthew and you're going to find Rahab's name there. That's right. Rahab's name, Rahab the prostitute, is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. That's how committed God is to saving by grace alone apart from works. With Abraham, uh, we've got this image of, of uh, his son. Why would God, or, or sorry, why would James bring this up? Why does he bring up this, this uh, offering up of Isaac as the proof, right? Well, in the ancient world, gods were out for blood. And our God shows he's not like any of the other gods because he's not out for our blood. He's willing to shed his own blood. So God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Isaac was called the son of promise, which is to make us think about the true son of promise. And The only reason Abraham has a son, Isaac, is because God brought life from death from Sarah's dead womb. So Abraham has already seen God do a miracle and bring life from death. So before Abraham even goes up the hill with his son, he turns to his servant. You can read this. And he says, the boy and I will return, which means Abraham has no idea how God is going to bring life from death. But Abraham knows God will bring life from death. And Abraham believes in the saving God who is not out for blood like all the other gods. He doesn't know how he's going to do it, but he does it. And Abraham, of course, is a very old, frail man. Isaac is 16. So this is actually the picture of a willing sacrifice because Isaac could have got away at any moment, but he did not. He he chose it, which is a picture now of Jesus Christ, the true son of promise, who is a true willing sacrifice. And Isaac was referred to as Abraham's only son, the son that he loved, which is, of course, to make us think about God saying, this is my only son, the son that I love, the very words that God spoke at Jesus' baptism. And so then, of course, when 
when Abraham puts Isaac on the altar, the boy says, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide a lamb. And of course, God says, stop, don't touch the boy. Proving I'm not like all the other gods who are out for blood. I am not out for blood. I will shed my own blood. How did he do that? Well, what's interesting is they said God will provide a lamb, but a lamb didn't show up. A ram showed up. So that begs a question. Where is the lamb? And that question echoed throughout the entire Old Testament until John was baptizing in the river. Where is the lamb? And John looks up from baptizing in the river and he sees Jesus and John says, Behold the lamb takes away the sin of the world. Christ is the lamb. James is bringing this whole thing. This is what you call, friends, in the industry, a theological callback, if you will. James is bringing this thing around to provoke his church to see neither Abraham nor Rahab were saved because of what they did. What they did was the evidence of true saving faith by God's grace alone. And so... What we find is, look at verse 20, Abraham is called a friend of God. You can, re- you can relate to God like a demon, which is fear. That faith is dead and useless. Or you can relate to God like he's your friend. Friend of God. Think about this. You've got friends, right? And uh, when you want to go hang out with your friends, think about, go back a little bit to when you were a teenager. Maybe you didn't even have access to a car. And you say, Mom, Dad, I'm going to go hang out with my friends. And they say, okay, what are you guys going to do? And you're like, well, we don't know yet. And you don't really have any plans. And they're like, well, what time are you going to be home? Well, I don't know. Well, where are you going to go? I don't know. I don't really know. And the reason that you don't really know is because the most important thing to you is not that you do something useful and productive. The most important thing to you is that you're with your friends. And what Abraham is called a friend of God. We, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, are called friends of God, which means Our ultimate desire is not, how is God useful to me? Dead religion. But my God is beautiful to me. I love him. I want friendship with him. So the life that I now live is motivated by wanting his smile. Not because it's earning me anything, but because the imitation of the one who saved me in grace is what the heart saved by grace truly wants. This is what James gives us this picture of being friends of God wanting to be with him, wanting a smile, simply because he's beautiful. And in the words of Jonathan Edwards, a great preacher in the, uh, uh, mid, uh, in the uh, 17th century, he would say, the, the person of dead religion only ever is interested in God if they find him useful. But those truly saved by grace will always see God as beautiful. And so when we see the beauty of what God has done, when we see the boundlessness of his grace, we will want to be guided by his wisdom and his word. We will want to turn from our sin. We will want to be animated by his word. In the words of uh, theologian uh, Thomas Chalmers, it is the expulsive power of a new affection that displaces our sin and our desire to live for his glory. So that the, the grace that has justified us in Christ alone We can prove, we can justify, if you will, by our ongoing desire to imitate Christ, as imperfect as that is. 
And so last thing as I close is this. Is it possible for dead faith to come alive? Is it possible to go from this place if I think God exists vaguely to I see God as beautiful? Is, it, is that possible? And how does this happen? Yes, it is possible. See, what James is exposing here, you know, what's, what's the answer? What do we do about this? How do I go from faith that's dead to alive? If you're on the call this morning, if you've been joining us for the last couple months here at Redeemer, and you've been exploring Christian faith, you're like, how do I become a child of God? How do I do this? What James is exposing is the problem is not that there was a, a, an insufficient amount of good works. The, the answer is not ramping up your good works. You're not saved by good works. The problem is not the good works. The problem is you're not a friend of God. And there's only one way to become a friend of God. And that is to turn and to trust in the Son of God. See the grace provided for you in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Dead faith cannot be made alive by rolling up our sleeves and saving ourselves through a loving life. We believe and we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that on the third day God rose him from the grave. And in doing so, Jesus Christ gives us his perfect record. And his righteousness justifies us. His righteousness is the basis for which we are justified. And so being united to him and filled with his spirit, that changes our life. So that gradually and increasingly, the kind of love that marked Jesus, it will slowly Yes, imperfectly, but inevitably and increasingly be found in our life. We are saved by grace. We are called friends of God by grace. And now, church, may we live to the glory of the one who saved us in grace. Let's pray.